Coming up on this episode of the Speakeasy Podcast, Veep star Timothy Simons details the love for one of the show's most hated characters, Jonah Ryan, and as well his humble origins from a small town in Maine where he was groomed to be a basketball player instead of an actor. Problem was, he was mediocre at best. I was the tallest child born in a very small town, so I was pushed toward basketball from a very young age, even though I didn't particularly enjoy it. But I don't know why they didn't learn their lesson after the first two years of a terrible basketball team led by the perennially underwhelming performances of Timothy Simons. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Wall Street Journal Speakeasy Podcast. My name is Mike Ayers. I'm an arts and entertainment reporter here at the Journal. On today's show, we are joined by Timothy Simons, who plays Jonah on HBO's acclaimed comedy Veep. The Onion's AV Club recently described his character as the most hateable twerp. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I feel like you must be doing something right if you get the word most thrown around at your work. <laughs> is this true? <laughs> I mean, I think so, but I suppose it depends on what words follow most. I mean, the most hateable, like that, like the the, the boy you love to hate, I guess. It, <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It means like you're cutting through the noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody is clear. Like if there, there's no, there's no question as to who is the most hateable. <laughs> Not at all. It is Jonah Ryan. Um, so when you were growing up, were you attracted to characters like this? I mean, these doofuses, these jackasses, these people that kind of get under your under your skin. Uh I don't know if I don't know if I was particularly attracted to them. And at the point, I, at that point. I don't even know if I was good at playing them. I know that I liked people. I know that I liked characters that said things at the wrong moments. I think that was a, a like a running theme of I always thought it was funny if there was a guy when everybody was about to get killed, he had some sort of pithy comment. Like I always kind of like that guy in a movie. The yeah. in- inappropriate guy. The inappropriate guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right, good. I mean, so you grew up in Maine, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Um, how, like, how did you get started? Were you the odd kid out, oh, that actor kid? No, I wasn't. I wasn't into acting uh, or theater or any of it when I was growing up or in high school. Um, I, 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 was the t- I was a small town. Pretty much all towns in Maine are small towns, uh, but I was from a particularly small one. And uh, I think it was just I, I was the tallest child born in a very small town, so I was pushed toward basketball from a very young age, even though I didn't particularly enjoy it. Um, and that's just kind of what I did all the way through high school. And I don't remember ever really enjoying it. I wasn't very good, and we didn't win. And and uh, and so I went to. I wasn't also. I was not a very good high school student, so I was always in danger of failing classes that would take me off of the basketball team. Really? Yeah, that's stressful. It was very, but like I don't know why I was stressed. I hated playing basketball. But everybody in the town must they, rely on you. But I don't know why they didn't learn their lesson after the first two years of our, of a terrible basketball team led by the 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 perennial un, the perennially <laughs> underwhelming performances of Timothy Simons. Did with, you did you shoot free throws like Shaq? Um, I think I I was okay at free throws. It's just very inconsistent. If if my coach is listening, I'm sorry for my inconsistency. Uh, I would uh, I would score two points a game sometimes, and sometimes I'd score twenty five. 
There was no counting on me. Yeah, coaches don't like that. No, they, they don't they, like that. They want, they want consistency. Either yeah. you consistently suck so you can be benched yeah. <laughs> or consistently awesome so you guys are winning. And it sounds like you weren't hitting either. I wasn't hitting either. And so uh, I went to – so I wasn't a very good high school student, and I ended up going uh, – I wanted nothing more than to get out of state. And uh, I ended up going to school in the state of Maine. I ended up going further into the state of Maine. And it ended up being uh, – a blessing in disguise because I ended up fi- finding theater when I was at school there. So you had no uh, desires when you were kind of growing up and through high school to to do drama. No, I like that. I liked it. You did. There was a there was a really cool um, Shakespeare theater a couple towns away from where I grew up, where it was kind of like a getaway for New York actors um, to get out of the city for a summer and just go up there. And, and so we, we grew up watching shows there, um, every summer. So it was something that I was interested in, but not ever as a performer. Um, but I was like a performer kid. Like I was like a, like a clown kid. I I was that I I needed and still need uh, like a lot of attention. There's no ceiling to the amount of attention that I would want. Okay. So you weren't a very good athlete, weren't a very good student, Uh and you sought attention and approval from others by being funny. Yeah. Getting a picture. Yeah. 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 So, um, so sort of a, a just a a perfect actor (laughs) just needs a lot of attention and isn't athletic. Um, so, uh, yeah, I found it when I was in college and started doing it there. So you picked it. Uh, did you start there as that major? No, I started as um, as a physics major because okay. uh, that was the only thing that I was good at in okay. high school. And then the, the leap from being a, a phys- like good at physics in high school to being a physicist is a, is a large – that's a big leap. It's a big leap. And I didn't make it. It's that, a bi- <laughs> that gap was too wide. It's a big commitment. It was a big commitment. I also was not going to make that commitment. Um so I just auditioned for plays. I was having trouble meeting people. I didn't really know anybody up there. Okay. I auditioned for some plays and kind of, kind of, I just got the bug. All right, good. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I was kind of wondering, you know, like was was comedy your thing or is it like pretty straight, straightforward stuff? I think I, I, when people have asked, I think I was always cast as the very tragically funny person in. A drama that was sort of like I, I feel like any straight play, which because I, I, I don't have a singing voice, um, or I mean I do, just nobody wants to hear it. I'm not a good singer, so I was never really attracted to musical theater. Um, uh, any play, like I feel like most straight plays are always, even if they're the darkest ones, they always have some sort of comedy in them, and so I was attracted to that. Um, and I was usually cast in those things, like the f- the funniest person in the saddest play was usually where I was put. I guess that's pretty good for the after parties. Yeah. I mean, hey, I was super depressed, but you made me laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good thing. That would be like the one thing that if somebody, even if somebody just hated the play, they were like, I don't know, it was a bunch of people crying. I don't know. I thought you were funny. <laughs> yeah, you have to find something to compliment about it. Yeah. Um, but usually it, good. <laughs> it was usually a bunch of like, you know, of course, high, uh, college theater kids taking it all, taking it all and themselves way too seriously. Of course. Of course. Is that, is that program good? I mean, did you feel like it gave you a pretty strong footing? I think so. Uh, I think so. I think one of the strongest things is that my college acting teacher, who actually recently passed away and went back to Maine for the for the service, um, was was like that first acting teacher that you have, which is like 
uh, like you're not special like that was her and like it was i mean it was it was wonderful i don't know if you can get away with it anymore um yeah you have to coddle people right? you have to coddle people a little more yeah. we certainly weren't coddled and it really it did and she was somebody that like grew up in new york city and and, and like was put on st- like cabaret shows like singing uh, you know Cole Porter, like those kind of songs, like in in cabaret shows when she was thirteen. Yes, yeah, she's legit. And she was like, yeah, this sort of like she had this myth about her, and so we listened to her. If she was, she could sniff out things that were false, and I think that was sort of what I latched on to. I mean, the program was. I mean, also you get out of it what you put into it, and there were a lot of things. There were a lot of classes that I skipped, and uh, I didn't skip a lot of theater classes. But I skipped all the other ones. Um, I just did a lot of shows, and I and. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I put a lot of work into it and I really liked it. I could probably could have used some more, uh, some more voice, some more voice classes mixed in there, but I did the best I could. All right. Um, so after that, well, you know, what, what was, what was kind of the, the plan you, you needed to get out of Maine? I needed to get out of Maine. That yeah. was, had been my plan the whole time. And it's too small, right? It's too small. There, I mean, like my whole, my whole, the whole, my whole thing was I wanted to make a living doing it. By the time I was done with school, I wanted to make a living doing it, or at least uh, give it a good shot. Yeah. And I had always been more attracted to cities. I didn't like that everything closed in Maine at six thirty. I wanted to be up in a place where more people were. Everything closes at six thirty. Six thirty. If you need milk at at eight o'clock, you're you're not getting it. Unless you have a cow. Unless you have a cow. Well, I guess. I guess a lot of people did. <laughs> Maybe they weren't worried about it. Like, why, I was. why did I go to the store? Why? I got a cow. The um, I think that's where the I think that's where the cliche comes from. Um, the uh, oh, so yeah, I wanted to get out of Maine. I don't know if that was a great joke. I think it was good. I don't know. Let's fine. let's live in the awkwardness of that for a minute. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so I you, wa- had, you headed west. I headed south first. South. I got a job at a. At a ch- as an intern at a children's theater in Kentucky, and after being like a, a college theater guy who took like their their dark, gritty theater uh, very seriously, and of course themselves very seriously. On top of that, I was going to work in a children's theater, which of course I thought was far beneath me. What were you doing? You were teaching. You were an usher. What? I was an usher. I ran. I built sets. I ran the light board for a show. I acted in, I think, four or five shows out of, I think they did nine, and I was in four or five of them. One of them was we drove around, uh, we, like, loaded Aesop's Fables into a van, and we drove it all around the state. Um, and then there were shows at the home base, and we just did everything. We just did everything that the theater might have needed. This sounds potentially uh, fantastic or awful it was it was awful in that i met no like-minded people no um in kentucky or very few there were a couple of people that i really Wait, got so you just picked kentucky or did you have a job there and you just like all right I'll, i'm gonna do it i i had a job there and i was like i'm gonna do it and okay. i had gone to like one of those things where you do contrasting monologues in front of like 80 theaters do you know what those are like, yeah yeah and so i did one of those and i got it and that was like the job that i got they picked you they picked me and so I went there. I was like, I'm getting out. I don't, I mean, I guess this is where. I'm out. I'm out. And so I flew down there. And then on my first day of work, my first day of work uh, was 9 11, 2001. Hmm. And of course, like rehearsal didn't last long. And then me and like these, like these other college graduates were down there for the rest of that year. And 
Um, and then while I was there, the one of the good things about it was I realized like I didn't want to I didn't want to have a life where I was like going around and living and doing shows in states that I didn't want to live in. I wanted to live in a home base, so I decided to go to Chicago after that. And actually, when that was done, I spent a summer working at that theater company in Maine, the one that I grew up okay. going to see. I went to another one of those big audition things where you do contrasting monologues and um, where you do contrasting monologues. And then I ended up getting a job at that theater two towns away from where I grew up. Chicago, you know, it's a, as you know, it's a great um, incubator for comedy. It is, absolutely, but I didn't do comedy when I was there. No. I went after, like, the storefront sort of small theater thing. That was sort of, like, my take-it-all-too-seriously really? vibe. Yeah. You're still I, there. You're still in that Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. And we've been talking for a couple minutes. You picked up on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, it, I just did, I, I liked sketch comedy. I Like, liked, who was the, who was the, um ideal pinnacle actor in your eyes at that time like who was who was the god for you honestly has and kind of always it was then and kind of still is it's always been steve buscemi okay yeah he's just always been the guy he can just do anything he can for sure and he does funny things and super dark stuff yeah don't know if he takes himself uh seriously or not but um i in the i've i've one of the like Somebody asked me what my best like Emmy memory was because we've been like we've been able to go to the Emmys uh, the last few years since the show we've been nominated since the show was on, which has been really cool. And somebody asked me what my favorite memory was, and the first thing that came to my mind was like the very first year I got to meet Steve Buscemi, and he doesn't seem like he, he really doesn't like in any in any experience I've had with him. It seems like he doesn't. So that's all been like a welcome. That's all been welcome. Um, all right. Yeah. So you're just making your making ends meet, and you have to work other jobs while you're doing doing that in Chicago, or no? You just you just bear down on the those small theater things. No, I uh, those small theater things. I think the first play that I was in, I got paid. I think I think it was probably six months or so, like rehearsal and the run. I think I got a check for twenty five dollars. So I had to I had to work other jobs. Like I worked at a Starbucks. Um, for a while and like with the experience that I had building plays which I didn't like building sets with which I did in college and which I did at that internship and at that college at the school uh, the theater in in Maine that I worked for um, I got a job as a carpenter uh, like as a stage carpenter building I would build sets during the day and then try to sneak out for auditions and then try to do plays at night so that was sort of mostly what I did to make money it's intense. It was fun. It yeah. really was. It was really fun. I mean, like I look back on it now, like we were we were uh, massively unsafe. I I never wore safety goggles. No safety goggles. No, we're dumb. I'm dumb. Everybody's st- we're dumb. We worked in this uh, the the shop that I worked for. It was all it was all small theater stuff in the shop that we worked in it didn't have heat and it was in chicago but we had fashioned this wood burning stove it was like this it was actually a, a sort of a marvel of engineering that this the this the heat from like this this wood burning stove would we welded together this heat exchanger thing that would blow the hot air from the from from the stove out into the room but the smoke would go up outside of the building and so by the time 10 o'clock rolled around you had been there for a couple hours you were able to work in shirt sleeves but like the first two hours you were in a winter coat mm. just like on a 20 below day how you're 38 now 39 37 i'm 38 just turned 38 my birthday was a couple days ago okay um and and, and you have kids do you ever find yourself walking around and just 
looking back at the stupid things you used to do, like building wood-burning stoves uh-huh. and just praying that your kids don't do the same things, but you know that they probably will. I do. That happens all the time. I'm assuming that happens to you. If this question is coming, yeah. Yes. The, um, there are so many, so many. I mean, like, even just the initial choice of deciding that they're going to try to make a living doing this. I don't even want them to make that choice. Um, but, I mean, we did. I just, I know they're going to. I know they're going to. It's just part of how you do it. I just hope it doesn't. I just hope they don't lose an eye in the process. Um, we used to do this thing where. Um, some boards were treated with cyanide. I think I can't remember what kind of boards it were. You're not supposed to cut them in an unventilated area, and you're not supposed to burn them. I feel like you're not even supposed to handle boards yeah. with cyanide, cyanide on them. Something about that is like find a handle, don't cut unless it's outdoors, and don't uh, and don't burn them. And we did all of it. We just did all of that. You've survived. You're here. Yeah, for now. For now, that's good. Yeah, I feel like these things come up later. I feel like at sixty is when they is when the hammer comes down. We're going to take a quick break. We're here with Tim Simons of the critically acclaimed HBO series Veep. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hello, welcome back to the Wall Street Journal Speakeasy podcast. My name is Mike Ayers. I'm an arts and entertainment reporter here at the Journal. Today, we are speaking with Tim Simons, who plays Jonah Ryan on Veep, which is currently in its fifth season. Tim, um, so when you moved to Los Angeles... uh, before you landed Veep, how were those early days? Lots of lots of auditions. A lot. I mean, not for. F- I did a lot of commercial auditioning. You did. Didn't have a lot of opportunity, or I was like, attempting to get opportunities to audition for uh, TV and film and stuff like that. But I didn't really have much of an inroad to it. I moved to Los Angeles in the stupid way, which is, I mean, there, I don't know that there is a smart way to move to LA, but I did the really dumb way, which was I didn't know anybody. I had no hook. I didn't. I didn't know anybody. Um, I had no hookups to any agencies or any sort of contacts in the business. We just moved out there because that's where that business is. And um, I ended up running camera. I had a, a bunch of odd jobs there. I was a prop runner for the L.A. Opera. Um, I was a, uh, um, I, like, you know, I did catering. I did whatever I could. And then I sort of landed in a, a job where I was session directing and commercial and running camera for commercial casting sessions where I was the guy that was recording them and giving directions and but then would also be able to jump in on them. And that's how I found uh, that's how I met a bunch of people in town doing that and how I found my way into uh, getting a commercial agent, which led to then booking some of those things, uh, which eased up on some of the financial concerns like that were you know of course we we moved to los angeles um in mid-july 2008 so three weeks later is when like the economy went off the cliff so we had you know we were like anybody in that time like jobs were really scarce and we were brand new there so i was trying to find a job when i knew nobody in that situation so i had to sort of like I was just out every day throwing resumes at where anybody that would take them. Um, 
But then, but then eventually, I was introduced through a commercial that I was in. Was introduced to the casting director, who ultimately casted cast uh, Veep, cast our show. Oh, that's a good uh, coincidence. It was, yeah. Right I was placed at the right time. Basically, yeah. And then, and she just said, "Oh, I think it was as simple as, oh, he's funny. Let's call him in for something." And then, I went in for something like six months before uh, a job I didn't get. And then I went in maybe five or six more times for jobs I didn't get. And then this one came up. And it went all right. I feel like the TV business, it was in this really strange place at that time because uh, like streaming hadn't really taken off. No. Okay. Um, but shows were still, you know, they wanted audiences and they wanted them quick. And so things were getting, you know, canceled left and right pretty, pretty quickly. If you didn't have like lost numbers, yeah. if you weren't doing like 22 million but, you know, YouTube was, you know, a few years old at that point, and people were really starting to, you know, just kind of go away from these traditional models. It must, I don't know, it must have been a really weird kind of time to to be out there trying to, trying to hustle it. I think it, I didn't give it, I honestly didn't give it much thought, I, only because, like, I would have taken any job that had come, that would have come my way. You know, my, my goal was to make a living doing it, and, um... And I think at that, I mean, like at that time, you were starting to see the beginnings of um, that sort of high-end TV. Like the, uh, the Sopranos had come and gone. The Shield, the Shield, um, uh, I think, wrapped up the first year that I was out there. So you had seen like the shows that had started this renaissance of, of sort of high-end television, and um, and 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 you were also starting to see like maybe the beginnings of like that like that fanatic following of a, a show that maybe doesn't have millions upon millions of followers. Like, I don't think there's any way. I mean, well, I guess as we see, like Arrested Development still exists there. I mean, like as far as they've said publicly, like they're going to try to make more of them. They get, they get the schedule. But like that show would never be canceled now, even if it didn't have numbers. Like you just don't right. get rid of that show now. And that show was, that was Canada. That was like around that same time. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, it, it was only pulling like four or five million a week. And that right. was, that was not good enough. That was not good enough. And now if of comedy on a network, it's four or five million. They're like, this is great. This is a hit. It's a hit. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And also interesting to, you know, learning more about your background. So if you weren't like this, you know, obsessed comedy nerd growing up you know <laughs> then you you know land at the show you know one of like your first pretty much big big yeah. thing with you know legends you know julie louis dreyfus matt walsh you know upright citizens brigade like he was you know been known for for a long time yeah. you know tony hale with arrested development um you know all all the people involved in that show are you know Top notch. They're they're incredible. And Armando, um, what he's done as far as comedy in the UK, which we don't know as much. But going into that, yeah, like luckily I didn't know any better. I think I should have been, and I was definitely nervous when I first showed up. Um, I probably should have been more nervous. I mean, you uh, got to go toe to toe with these people, and it's so quick. The dialogue that you guys are running is so quick. These jokes are so so fast yeah they they are but one thing that made it okay was that we had this rehearsal 
period. We had this rehearsal process. We didn't just jump into shooting the first day. I think we had six or seven days of rehearsal um, before, when we workshopped this whole thing. And so by the time we were on set, I wasn't the I wasn't super comfortable, but I was more comfortable than I would have been. And I had a chance to develop uh, trust with the rest of the people that at the time I really needed. Uh, being so inexperienced, I really needed to trust them and feel like and just feel a little bit more comfortable in that room with those guys so that by the time we got on that set, which was the biggest set I've ever been on, um, I knew that I could, if I just focused on them and thought about just, you know, instead of thinking about the whole giant thing that we're doing, just think about talking to five people in a room, which I had done before and I had done with them. So, so that made me feel more comfortable. But, um, now with a little bit more experience, I'm not as nervous first days on set. It's still there. You always still think you're garbage. The first day you're on still any, nervous, not on our show, but like the first day on any new set. This is something that Tony Hale and I talk about a lot. Like if you're the first day on any new set, for some reason you always feel like you have learned and taken nothing from any other job. It feels like your first day, and so when you, I'll text him at the end of a first day and be like, "Hey, I just had a I just had a first day on set," and he knows exactly what I'm talking about, which is you just go home being like, "Man, I'm bad at this. I'm garbage." How do you get over that? Uh, I don't know that you do. I think you just better at, you're just better at putting it behind you. I think that's the only way. Is just be like, all right, this is just what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, I I read an article today here, you know, in today or yesterday's journal um about, you know, these these voices that persist in people's heads and the, like the percentage of negative thoughts about your work. Um, whatever that may be, whatever profession you're in is like w- so much higher than the positive thoughts or like the compliments you give yourself. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. And I was like, yeah, that's, I can see that in a lot of just carrying over to everything. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's, uh, I, I'm, I haven't tried it yet. Maybe saying more positive things would, would be good, but I guess maybe I've just always kind of thrived off. I feel like the the self-criticism is sort of what drives you forward and what makes you put extra time into things and what makes you just work harder to try to make it better uh, you know i don't know maybe i should like try to even it out a little bit maybe maybe i don't know um well jonah uh on this season his uh his storyline has has taken a rather dramatic <laughs> turn uh congressman jonah is this a job he's ready for Absolutely. He's been ready for every job he's, he's ever gotten. He was born. He was, he was born, born ready, born to run. He was. And I think um, that was the other song. Thank you for uh, this. I'm going to explain that in a second. But uh, no, I think that this was, this job is how he sees himself. He has always cast himself as a, a, a beloved politician um speaking for his community and his constituency uh he's always viewed himself as somebody who would take power who is a natural leader who's very charming like this is exactly where he thought he would end up despite despite so much evidence to the contrary that he believes he is talented and charming and good looking it i must say it was a shocking turn of events it's very it's very uh i think it was a um, i think you would expect that he would lose that he would get in his own way and i do like that there was a misdirect based on everything you know about him you would assume he'd lose and i like that they took a little veepish misdirect 
They did. And well, it also feels like over the course of four and five and a, so basically five and a half seasons, he has constantly been demoted. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways. And, yeah. you know, even at the beginning of this season, he was, you know, he was second fiddle and or third fiddle, whatever. He was not first fiddle. No. And now he he is first fiddle in a much bigger way than anybody would have expected. But the great thing about this is, is that, you know, obviously all the other characters, you know, loathe him. Yeah. And um, but now they need him in ways that they never have before. So that dynamic going forward for these uh, storylines and the comedy, it just kind of really opens it up, I think. I know it really does. Like they, it's, I think it's sort of like a funny thing about politicians. Like they might hate me, but they, they have use for me. So they, they have to now, they have to now deal with it and they, they're all happy for it. If Jonah will help us get what we want, then fine. They, they're celebrating it. They're not worried about the other things. The reason I born to run came up was because at the, somebody, there was a moment that I think ended up being too written, maybe too broad or just like too unbelievable that at the end of the first speech that he makes in the debates, he's been given, um, uh, a bunch of cease and desist orders from bands, preemptive cease and desist Enya orders. was one of them, right? Huh? Enya was one of them? Enya was one of them? He wanted to cease and desist her. <laughs> he wanted to cease and desist her. And, uh, and at the end of that speech, we somehow managed to... So he had gotten cease and desist letters, and I don't think this made it in, from Metallica, from Bruce Springsteen, and from Tom Petty. And at the end of his speech, he says, she is not the master of puppets, I was born to run, and I won't back down. So he managed to use the all of them, all of them in one sentence. In one sentence, and I just I I love that joke that it would have just been planted in his head, and they all came out even after he wasn't supposed to use them. But um, but I think it, it wasn't used either. We didn't have the time, or it ended up sounding too written. But I love that. I mean, this is the longest character you've lived with. What's been kind of at the forefront in, in his evolution? Do you think? I think being able to spend this much time with a character is his evolution. I think I think he's gotten more savvy politically when he when he first came in. It was really just about the uh, it was just about the address and it was about uh, proximity to power. I think he has gotten a little bit more savvy uh, politically. I think he has been close to and sort of like uh, leached off enough people more powerful than him leached he has a really good description he's a leecher he's a leecher he has just he has he has sidled up next to a bunch of people and he has learned a little bit from them so he's not necessarily a good political animal but he has learned since he's been there and i think one of the things especially in the season four storyline with teddy sykes like was to be able to show like his uh was to sort of uh, force uh, sympathy from the audience for him to really let like this this molestation or this assault the sexual assault in the workplace that he was going through make it really weigh on him that he didn't want it to be happening. He really thought that he had found it. He was like, I, I fit in here. This is a great place for me. And then it all goes wrong. And he thinks that it's going to mess up his, if he doesn't go along with it, it's going to mess up his career opportunities and to have that really weigh on him and to hopefully force the audience to really feel bad for him when they hate him so much. 
but no, I mean, no one on the show empathized with him ever. And no. I felt like it was very hard for the audience to, like, I don't know. I might, I'm just speaking for myself, but they, uh, you know, I kind of felt a little, a little glee. You know, he was kind of getting a little, you know, taste of his own medicine. He, and hope, you know, maybe he would change, but uh, I don't know. I, I always, when we were talking about it and going through those scenes, we talked about the idea that he would never see the one-to-one of, of Teddy's behavior to him and his behavior to women in the, uh, in the office. Like, whatever, like, he is a serial sexual harasser, but he doesn't see the connection between what he does. He'd be like, oh, well, that's just, like, people in the office being buddies and giving each other back rubs. And, and like, but Teddy Sykes, that's sexual harassment. He would never see the connection between those two. And even though the other people in the show didn't really feel for him, uh, I think the audience ultimately did, which I really like that they were put in that position. Hmm. Maybe. Is there a code name in Washington for these Jonah types? I think it's really just, oh, he's a f-ing Jonah. I think that's really it. Oh, it, I really. The Jonah has become synonymous. From what we understand, um, like those, those, like the names of characters on the show have started to be thrown around as descriptors. That's like, wild. But the thing is, like, a Jonah's never going to say he's a Jonah. He's always going to say he's a Dan. He's a Dan, yeah. He's a Dan. Yeah, he's. Um, he has uh, he has filters on his worldview lens. Yeah, um, you know one of the best things about you know Jonah and the, the show in general, and it's not just him, but he's you know he's often on the receiving end of amazing insults, but you know he dishes them out as well. Uh, is there kind of like an insult secret sauce you've learned over the years that's unique to Veep? Because they seem like they string together these language, this language that. I don't know. It would never. It would never occur to me to say those words to people. But oftentimes they're they come in like packs of two to four. You know, they they string them along in ways that are just. Um, it's it's new to the to the to dialogue. There is. It has become a whole separate language into uh, into and of itself. And I think that it, it usually just depends on the individual insult because swearing is a big part of it, but def. Scripts is also a big part of what we do. What is that? That just means we have to go through and make sure we're not saying too many times and we have to save them. Uh, like I've done a bunch of ADR where in a line I might say, what, what the f are you doing here? Uh, but then a couple, a couple lines later I say, fuck that, but we want to save it for the fuck that. So we just ADR over the first one. So we have to defuck scripts. We have to kind of defuck on the day. And then sometimes we have to defuck the, the, the insults or sometimes they're overwritten and they sound like a clever, you really want it to feel like it's part of the dialogue. Um, so you have to sometimes take away words and make them much more clear. Um, they're, or sometimes they're just too harsh and not creative enough. Uh, the one that springs to mind is like a couple episodes I think this last episode, it was something like, I don't deal well with hag-ass-old bitches when I'm talking about my second grade teacher. And I think that was just like, I just don't deal well with old bitches, which just sounds too harsh. Like, it didn't scan right. And so when you put the hag in front, it becomes a little bit better. It doesn't sound so blunt. It doesn't sound so harsh. That's why it's so unique, though, because... um you know, those three words, you know, you don't hear that. You don't no. hear people saying that to each other. You don't. It's just um, it's a very uh, it's, that's a great example. Um, 
of, of, of what I was talking about. It sounds yeah. like a lot of thought is put into, you know, each because each character slings it as much as they, you know, gets I, get it slung towards them. So yeah. everybody has to except Gary, but they have to be pretty, you know, on on point with, you know, how everything comes out. Yeah. And there is a thing that uh, some of my favorite ones have always been ones without swearing. Like the, the one of the most brutal ones that I heard this year was um, he's the wrong shape was one that got thrown at me in the in the uh, the uh, what do you call it with the two way mirror? What is that called? Focus group? The, yes, the, the focus, focus group. group. In the focus group, they're describing it as like sometimes his body is too big for his head, but then sometimes his head is too big for his body. Yeah. And then just somebody goes, he's the wrong shape. And that's so. Is that the one that set him off? That that bring, that 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 brought Jonah out of I the room. I think so. I think so. It was right in there. It's the most simple, de- simple description. Yeah. The wrong shape. Yeah. Were you uh, a political person before Veep? Did you did you follow politics a lot? Did I you, did. You did. Yeah, I did. I think I've become a little bit more cynical about it since being on the show. Mm. Like since seeing behind the curtain a little bit, um, I've become a little bit more cynical about it. Um, I was definitely one of those people that followed it very closely, but everything I believe is right. That, you know, a lot of Facebook posting, that sort of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm like, I'm just, I'm like your worst uncle. In what way? Like you're just like ranting on Facebook? Yeah, ranting on Facebook. There's always an article that proves your point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's great that there's such a plethora of things for people to be able to prove their point on social media. And what's so funny is that sometimes there are articles that prove uh, contradictory uh, sides of of a single point. In the same article, in this, or no, just like if I believe one thing and you believe one thing, we can both find articles that prove ourselves. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Oh yeah, right? daily, 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 yeah. Um, all right. Well, what's on the what's on the horizon? What's the summer look like? Um, uh, family travel, doing a little bit of that, going to see grandparents. I'm in a couple movies that are coming out later on this year. That um, one's called Christine, which I think is kind of falls into that. Uh, Sort of very, um, I might I tell you I'm like one of the funny people in a very dark movie about uh, Christine Chubbuck, the woman, uh, the reporter who committed suicide uh, in the 70s. Um, I play Steve Turner, the weatherman in that movie. I think that comes out in the fall. And then I'm in a, a movie called Gold, Matthew McConaughey movie about, uh, about a gold swindle. Um, I play a, a small part in that. Um, and that, that comes out in the later in the year as well, I think. Matthew McConaughey heist gold heist movie. It's like it's a it's not a heist movie. It's more of a it's like a swindle, a swindle, like a gold mine swindle. Okay, I'm okay. Swindles maybe like pre heist. Swindle is yeah, because they're not like they're not. You don't hear about swindles very much these yeah, days. A con, but like a, yeah, yeah, I think it's a con. Okay. All right, good. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, man. It's been fun. Thanks for tuning in today. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and also on the Google Play Music app on your Android devices. Thank you. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.